Please be seated. Please open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. It's normally my practice to read the entire chapter if I'm dealing with a particular portion, but in, in light of the fact that there are multiple letters to the churches in chapter 3, and I want to focus on the church of Laodicea, I'm going to draw your attention specifically to verses 14 through 19, although I'll probably still wind up referring back to other churches in the letters. So Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 19 is our text. Again, here is the inspired, preserved word of God. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither hot, neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Thus far concludes the reading of God's word. The grass withers. The flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Matthew Mead, in his book, The Almost Christian Discovered, lays out a simple definition of what a Christian is. I mean, the ti- I commend the book to you. Uh, the title, The Almost Christian Discovered, obviously, if he's talking about those people who are almost Christians, it seems like a logical connection to make that he would want to define what a Christian is. And it's a simple short sentence. He says, a Christian is a disciple of Jesus Christ and one who believes in and follows Christ. I'll say that again. This is from Matthew Mead in his book, The Almost Christian Discovered. He says, a Christian is a disciple of Jesus Christ and one who believes in and follows Christ. Seems like a simple thing. And to Christians it is. And it is because this is a spiritual definition. We understand that the natural man doesn't receive those spiritual things because he can't understand them. He can't know them until God changes that man into a spiritual man. We think of W.G.T. Shedd and his sermons to the natural man and his sermons to the spiritual man. There are two different types of people. There are two different types of people in the same way that there are two different types of religions spoken of in Scripture. The two religions in Scripture are the true religion and false religion. That false religion tends to have a lot of things in its bucket. And then, similarly, there are two types of people, the spiritual man and the natural man. 
Christ makes it very clear in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. I'm going to read that to you. You can stay in Revelation if you'd like. Matthew chapter 12, verse 30 tells us, we've, we've heard it, but it's always better to hear directly from the Lord. He says, He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Simply put, there is no neutrality, there is no middle ground, there is no third way. There is the way of Christ, and then there is the way of non-Christ. Unless you think I'm pulling one text out and saying, well, that's one text, although that should really be enough for the blood-bought lamb of the Lord Jesus. One word from the scriptures should settle the matter, no matter how eloquent our argument to the contrary might be. I'm going to go back to 1 Kings chapter 18. And we're going to spend some time with the prophets of Baal. But we're also going to spend some time with one of God's prophets. 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 21 through 40 is what I'm going to read. And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. And if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. Then said Elijah unto the people, I, even I only remain a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let them therefore give us two bullocks, and let them choose one bullock for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on wood, and put no fire under. And I will dress the other bullock, and lay it on wood, and put no fire under. And call ye on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God that answereth by fire, let him be God. And all the people answered and said, It is well spoken. And Elijah said unto the prophets of Baal, Choose you one bullock for yourselves, and dress it first, for ye are many. And call on the name of your gods, but put no fire under. And they took the bullock which was given them, and they dressed it, and called on the name of Baal, from morning even until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice nor any that answered. And they leaped upon the altar which was made. And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is talking, or he is pursuing, or he is in a journey, or peradventure he sleepeth and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancets till the blood gushed out upon them. And it came to pass When midday was past, and they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, that there was neither voice nor any to answer, nor any that regarded. And Elijah came unto all the people, and Elijah said unto all the people, Come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two measures of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bullock in pieces, and laid him on the wood, and said, Fill four barrels with water, and pour it on the burnt sacrifice, and on the wood. 
And he said, do it the second time. And they did it the second time. And he said, do it the third time. They did it the third time. And the water ran round about the altar, and he filled the trench also with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell, and consumed the burnt sacrifice, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. And Elijah said unto them, Take the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they took them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. So we don't have in Scripture a way to have a foot in one world and a foot in the other trying to walk in some strange third path that's designed only for us. Didn't work really well with the prophets of Baal. Elijah said, if God is God, then he's God. But if Baal's God, follow him. There's one or the other. We see, we are replete with examples to love not the world, to not be conformed to the ways of the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, that he that loves the world is at enmity with God. We see the distinctions made all throughout Scripture. As Israel was going to enter into the promised land, what are they told? To not do what? Intermingle, to not try to mix the true religion of the true God with the false religion of every other God that people have created for themselves. So there's no middle ground to be had. There is good, there is evil, there is righteousness, there is wickedness, there is God, and there is everyone else. And yet, what do we see in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 through, verses 14 through 19? The disease of Laodiceanism, the sin of of Laodiceanism, the wickedness of Laodiceanism, as they have decided for themselves in some form or fashion to try to walk that line. They're not going to be one or the other. They're going to be the ones that can pull it off. They're going to try to do a little bit of both. It doesn't seem to work out well for them. Now, before we continue, I'm going to do three things this morning. We're going to talk about the Laodicean Christian as an individual and the marks. We're going to talk about the Laodicean church, and I don't necessarily mean the church in Laodicea. We see what's going to happen with them, and we know that Laodicea is not a booming metropolis to this day. So we know what happened in the grand scheme of things. But we're going to talk generally about what happens when the church becomes Laodicean or drinks at the filthy well of Laodiceanism, and then we're going to look at what the remedy for Laodiceanism actually is. So let's get into the text here. Again, remembering what Matthew Mead told us, our simple working definition, we can look at it in Scripture, we see that a Christian is a disciple of Jesus Christ. He gathers with Christ. He is a sheep 
that hears his shepherd's voice and runs to him. He believes in Christ. He follows Christ. He obeys Christ. When Christ says, if you love me, keep my commandments. He believes Christ when Christ says that there's one of two options for you. You gather with me or you scattereth abroad. So let's look at the marks of the Laodicean Christian. For starters, look at what Jesus says in verse 14. These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. This is not just the Apostle John saying, hey guys, these angels wanted me to say something to you. This is John saying, God, Christ is saying this, the Amen, the verily, the it is true, the truth, the word made flesh that dwelled among you, Laodiceans, the one that is faithful and true, upon whose word and works you can rely. The beginning of creation, that isn't to say the way some cults say that Jesus was the first thing that God created and then Jesus created everything else. The firstborn in status and honor, the one that gets the birthright, and then by extension, as we receive his work for us, for our salvation by faith, we are participants in that, but it is him who gets the glory and honor. It is at his name that every knee shall bow. It's him that's speaking to you, Laodiceans, what John is saying. And what are the first words out of Jesus' mouth to the Laodiceans? It's, they're the first words that anyone who has sinned does not want to hear. They're the words that call someone to account. Look at verse 15 with me. I know thy works. Because the sinner wants to do their sinning under the cover of darkness, where they will never be found out. And he hides from people. He hides from his family. He hides from his friends. He hides from his co-workers. He hides from his church, those things that he's doing. And from an earthly perspective, it seems like the perfect gimmick, right? You can go on about your sinning, But you show up to church on the Lord's Day or whenever the doors are open at the church and you have the right clothes on and you're saying the right things and you get the Christian cliches, hey, you know, things are tough, but God is good. All the while, you are full of dead men's bones, just like Jesus said with regards to the Pharisees. The whitewashed tombs, pretty on the outside, but rotten on the inside. So for somebody to come along and say, I know thy works, and moreover, for that one to be the God who made you in all things, it's not what somebody wants to hear. So one of the marks of the Laodicean is they're doing their sinning under the cover of darkness, thinking that they're going to get away with it. Now, their sinning might not necessarily be the overt, vicious nastiness of the avowed atheist or the avowed God-hater. But that's really the point. And it's odd what Jesus says, and we would be confused a little bit. 
to say that that as Jesus continues on in verse 15, he says, I know thy works that that are that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou were cold nor hot. Now, it would be easy for us to say, well, is Jesus saying that he wants us to be sinners? That he wants us to be rebels? That's not the point of the turn of phrase. It would be better that we were hot on fire for the Lord or cold, wicked sinners so that we could be converted so that we would be receptive to the gospel, because the gospel saves sinners. The problem that Jesus is outing with the Laodicean Christian is the main problem that many of us have struggled with prior to our conversion, and sometimes, even afterwards, as the Lord has worked on us and weeded those sins out, and the Holy Spirit has dug the sins out at the root, it's self-deception. It's self-delusion that we can somehow walk in the world and be of it but not be of it, but to claim to identify ourselves as a disciple of Christ while at the same time engaging in, cultivating, and doing those things that a disciple of Christ would never do because they recognize the repellent nature of them and somehow balance those things in some sort of cosmic, karmic, scale situation all the while telling themselves, no, I'm, I'm right with God because I'm doing the right things and I'm going to church when I'm supposed to go to church. I'm supposed to not forsake the assembly of the saints. I'm not forsaking it. All the while loving and valuing the things that Christ has told us to not love and to not value. And so the, the point in the turn of phrase is it would be better if you were all in for Christ or all in for his enemies, because then the gospel can be brought to bear on the one who is honestly and openly an enemy of the gospel. It's the one who thinks that they're okay that has been infected with the sin of Laodiceanism, that they're living in this dream world, this fantasy world, that Something other than the gospel of grace has taken hold of them to make them think that they're right with the Lord. And Jesus talks about this at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. At the end of Matthew chapter 7, he has strong words, and they ought to be terrifying to us. And Mead, in his book, The Almost Christian Discovered, speaks to this, because he says something along those lines. He says, lest I terrify soundly saved people by putting some sort of, and I'm paraphrasing Mead here, He's saying, lest I terrify them by, by putting a weird paranoia in. He said, recognize that the truly saved person would talk and would think on the fact that many people claim to be Christians that actually aren't. And they would wonder and concern themselves, but would be driven to Scripture for their comfort. So, Jesus' point at the end of chapter 7 kind of confirms that it would actually be better to be all in one or the other, not trying to walk in both worlds. Look at what he says from verse 21 and following of chapter 7 in Matthew. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name have done many wonderful works? 
And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. It's terrifying. And then we are reminded from Scripture that the blood-bought Lamb of the Lord Jesus submits to the will of his heavenly Father. It's all sorts of imagery. Recognizing the shepherd's voice, does the will of the Father, believes in the one that God sent. That's the work of Abraham, because Jesus is talking to the Jews, and they say, we have Abraham as their father, almost showing us a proto-Laodiceanism, that we're going to rely on our reputation, our lineage, our family tree. We've got it made. We can do whatever we want, because we're sons of Abraham. And Jesus says, if you were sons of Abraham, if you were children of Abraham, you would be doing what Abraham did. So what did Abraham do? He believed, and it was counted unto him as righteousness. So the Laodicean Christian is putting all of their eggs in a non-biblical basket. They're trusting their church attendance or their morality or their piety on social media or their church attendance, did I say church attendance, their baptism, they're taking things that should be the fruit of salvation and the, the evidences of something that's already been done and making it the root or the cause of their salvation and saying, hey, I've got it all taken care of. I can engage with the world however I see fit. Paul dealt with this. We're not going to sin so the grace may abound. I mean, on a practical level, we don't do wicked things so that God can pour out more grace. If we're soundly saved, we want to flee from the wicked things in the first place. We're not going to try to imbibe them in some strange balance. Like other false religions say that the scales of the cosmos have to balance or there's some sort of karmic debt that we have to repay. And that's why we're reincarnated into creatures and you know, the extent to which you need to repay is the, the value or lack, lack of value of the animal into which you're reincarnated. It's a, an exhausting, exhausting process. So the Laodicean Christian is doing these things. We're lukewarm. We're, eh, I could take or leave. I'm going to do the things to take care of myself, but I'm not really passionate about the, the things of God. Matthew Henry said that just as lukewarm water is worthless to people, lukewarm Christians will be rejected as well. You ever had lukewarm water? It's not hot where you can make tea out of it and maybe enjoy that. It's not cold in that it refreshes and lowers your body temperature. The imagery is lukewarm water is just like, eh, I could take or leave it. Like I guess it gets something done, but it's not really ideal. It's kind of milk toast Christianity. And all too frequently, when we deviate from the scriptures, we're flirting with Laodiceanism as individuals. And maybe, you know, well, my neighbor is not saved, but he's a good guy. And, you know, I don't want to make it weird when we're walking down to the mailbox together. So I'm just going to I'm going to let this ride. It's not that big of a thing. Yeah, you know, I, I was looking at that woman with lust in my mind. But you know, I'm not doing anything, so I can look at the menu as long as I don't order. You hear this kind of thing. And it's a, it, it reveals what's already in their hearts. And Jesus spoke to this. It's not what co- goes into someone that makes them unclean. It's what's already unclean and comes out of them. It reveals the uncleanness that's already there. 
the cavalier nature that people handle sin. And frankly, the cavalier nature and flippant nature with regards to righteousness and turning from sin. The idea that actually physically at times turning from sin could somehow be wicked and sinful and we shouldn't do it. It's topsy-turvy. And it, it throws the individual's life into chaos because they wind up calling evil good and good evil in an Isaiah 5 context. And in the end of Romans chapter 1, which will eventually lead to not only sinning but encouraging others to do the same. And as the church, as the individual within the church downgrades and slides in their understanding of Scripture and their knowledge of the Bible, which is the inoculation against the sin of Laodiceanism, I've given away my third point a little bit, but you should know that anyway, because as Reformed Christians we do go back to the sources. We go back to Scripture. If we don't begin with Scripture, then anything that we do is flawed. And if we don't go back to Scripture to understand why we were flawed, then we're just doubling down on our error. So the Laodicean Christian has has a cavalier attitude towards sin, is flippant with regards to pursuing righteousness and holiness and genuine biblical piety. That's not emotionalism. It's not pietism. It's not something that's true because of how it makes me feel. We're not engaged in logical fallacies there. It's understanding that Scripture dictates what God has with regards to how we are to live concerning the life around us, what we're to believe concerning God, the duty that God requires of us, namely that we believe in the one that he sent, obedience to his revealed will. That's the moral law, but we can't follow the moral law. That's why we need Christ. We believe in the one that he sent to live the life that we should have lived, and to die the death that we actually deserve. The Laodicean Christian plays fast and loose with this and is, eh, could take or leave the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's the individual Christian. You're neither hot nor cold. You're just, eh, yeah. And look at verse 16. You see the end result of that. It's not going to work out well for that person. That person's not going to be gathered by the shepherd's staff of Jesus Christ. He's going to be scattered by that same shepherd's staff, just used differently. He's not going to be drawn in. The end of the Sermon on the Mount tells us the end of the Laodicean Christian. That to do the things without the conversion of the heart, the new life given to us in Christ, is to actually work iniquity. It's a truncated view of how we relate to God to just say that we can do godly things and think that that makes us okay. The Laodicean Christian forgets that the works flow out of a converted heart or they are wicked works. There is no one that can truly do good works save for the genuinely converted Christian. Now, you would say, Pastor, I've seen heathens do all sorts of good things. And certainly, they ha- it has the perception of good, and that does do good to people. But as we define good biblically, there is no one good but God. And by extension, there are no good works save for godly works. The natural man cannot do good works. But the converted man, the spiritual man, the faithful man, the one that's actually hot versus cold, 
That's another thing completely. That person saved unto good works, saved in order to do good godly things to advance the kingdom, to bring glory and honor to God, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So this one that thinks that they can do the things and somehow they'll be all right in the end, as though they could trick God, has been infected with that Laodicean spirit. I'm going to do the things. Maybe I'll slide in at the end. You'll hear this in in uh, in people's minds when they say something like, "Well, I'm going to do all my sinning, and then I'm going to I'm going to slide under the radar with a deathbed confession," as though we have the power to control when we convert and whether we're actually going to have that deathbed. You would just imagine almost something out of a cartoon. The person that says, "I'm going to." I'm going to sin my entire life and have the deathbed confession, and then an anvil falls on them, like in the old cartoons, as though, as though the Lord might say, no, I'm, going, I'm the one that decides who lives and who dies, and when that person dies, and then comes their judgment. But you hear that, because it's a cavalier kind of, huh, you know, I'm going to do what I do, and then at the end, when things are really, you know, when I've done all the fun stuff that I want to do, then I'll give the rest to God. Go look in the book of Malachi at the end of the, New Te- the Old Testament and figure out exactly what the Lord has to say for people that bring lame, sick sacrifices. He says, would you do that to the governor? Would you do that for the civil magistrate? And yet you do that to me. So that Laodicean spirit in the individual oftentimes look like, looks like moralistic, therapeutic deism. I believe that God exists, but... You know, I'm just going to do the things that make me feel good, maybe help some folks around me. But as far as a genuine saving relationship, actually confessing that I've done something wrong and that I need to be saved from the punishment that my sin has brought in my life, oh, I'm not about that. I'm not about that. But there's some good stuff in the church, and I can enjoy those things. That's the Laodicean spirit. It doesn't end well. Not at all. Look at what Jesus says. I'm going to spew thee out of my mouth at the end of verse 16. Verse 17. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. I'm good. Pastor, I don't need you to come visit me. I don't need you to pray for me. Hey, we're all good over here. Go deal with those other people. The tax collector, the publican in the back. I'm not, I'm not like those guys. I'm all good. Go deal with the, with the publican, that, that dirt bag in the back. Because I... You know, I tithe all out of all I have, and I'm fasting all the time, and I'm praying all the time, and hey, I'm here in church, Pastor. What do you want from me? That's that Laodicean Christian mindset. I don't need anything. I'm good. You don't need to pray for me. God's given me all this stuff. It's self-delusion. German humanist Goethe said that there's no one more hopelessly enslaved than the one who falsely believes that they're free. The Laodicean Christian has a false belief in their freedom, unaware that they've just got really comfortable shackles, but ultimately they're enslaved to sin, and they think it's freedom. And Jesus says as much at the end of verse 17. He says, They knowest not that thou thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. The Laodicean Christian thinks everything's good, not realizing that the sword of God's judgment hangs over them, that they rightly deserve God's wrath and curse 
that just because the stuff on the outside is nice and fancy, that, but that's not the whole of the need for Jesus. The gospel being reduced to life enhancement is one of the biggest sins that we have committed as a culture. To distill down the gospel of Jesus Christ to come to Jesus and he'll take all your problems away. Now, ultimately, there's a sense in which that's true because in eternity, those problems will be away. But we have become so sloppy and Laodicean in our thinking, and this is the transition to the church proper. We have become so watered down and Laodicean in our thinking as to how we present Christ to the world that what we've done is said, come to Jesus and he'll make all of your problems go away starting now. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's simply not. Jesus talked about us being hated because they hated him. Jesus talked about us being killed by people who think that they were doing God's service. Jesus talked about always having the poor around. Jesus talked about always having trials and temptations. But to rest in peace, knowing that we were united to God through him. But he never said we wouldn't have problems. And as the church has truncated the gospel, maybe to make it more palatable, maybe to bring more bodies into the room and bottoms into the seats, we have imbibed the spirit of Laodiceanism. I'm not saying this church. I'm saying generally speaking. We need to take a long, hard look and examine ourselves as the body of Christ in our culture to see if we've actually fallen into this trap because we've seen it played out in other places. And just like the individual Christian reading Matthew Mead's book going, whoa, 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 I don't want to be the almost Christian, which is, of course, the first piece of evidence that you're not the almost Christian. I had someone come into my study one day say, Pastor, I'm really worried that I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. I've read in Scripture that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the unforgivable sin. And, and Pastor, I don't know if I'm saved because I'm worried about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. I said, for starters, let's take a breath and calm down. That you are worried about offending the Holy Spirit is the first and maybe only but certainly the biggest sign that you have not blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Let's not look at Matthew Mead's title of his book because he says that far more people are almost Christians than we realize. Let's not panic and say, well, maybe I'm an almost Christian. I don't know. Hold on. That you're concerned about it is a good benchmark as an individual and as a church. If we as the local church are focused all on the scriptures, all on Christ, presenting the whole gospel to the whole man and the whole society. And we are consistently evaluating our actions as individuals and as the church by what scripture says. Then that again is the inoculation against Laodiceanism. Maybe I should have just had a two-point sermon and given you the inoculation, the third point interspersed through it. I don't know. But the simple fact of the matter that just as individuals are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked because they have not understood the full gospel and not understood the scripture. The church proper can also fall into that trap. And we've seen many churches that have abandoned 
like an earlier church in Revelation, abandon their first love, abandon the scriptures, abandon the gospel, and abandon Christ, and taken an approach of, well, we'll give away bags of school supplies. Again, not a bad thing. Folks need school supplies. That's a good thing. But if you replace good works with the Bible, no, if you replace the Bible with good works, and you think that that's what's going to make you a faithful church, and you have imbibed that Laodicean spirit. If you say, we've got all this stuff, God has brought a bunch of people to us, certainly he's blessing us. Is he, though? What are you offering? Generally speaking, again, not pointing the finger at anyone in particular, and not pointing the finger at this church. But if we look at the life of the church, let's say in the United States, What are we offering to say that God has blessed because he's brought people? Because we see elsewhere in Scripture that people want their ears tickled and they'll gravitate towards ministers that do just that and churches that will do just that. You can find a church for nearly every demographic in this country. The question we need to ask is can you find a church that loves the things that God loves, that loves the Son that God sent, and that loves the Bible that God preserved. That's what we need to find in the society in which we live. We've all seen churches that have need of nothing. They're increased with goods and rich. We see people without jobs or underemployed, and we see churches entering into six- and seven-figure building projects. What's going on? It's certainly certainly possible that the Lord has blessed those folks because they're faithful. It's also possible that that Laodicean spirit that we've seen from the world in our culture, that per people and organizations are judged by what they consume, what they bring in, versus what they produce, what they send out into the world. It's the spirit of the age. It's the spirit of our culture. And we've seen far too many churches acquiesce to that because they've lost their first love, because they haven't gone ad fontes. They haven't gone back to the source. They've set the source aside. Or worse, used it as a parlor trick to draw people in. And that's the spirit of Laodiceanism. It's not full-bore wickedness. They haven't gone full-bore liberal Protestantism or paganism. Or any other kind of ism. They haven't gone full bore all the way that Christ said, look, it would be better because at least we could deal with one another. Like you're a full bore heathen. The gospel saves and converts full bore heathens. That's great. It's the it's the person and it's the church that says, no, 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 no. We're not that. We're not like those Bible thumpers, but we're not like those folks over here. Come on in. We can, we, we you know. We do a little Bible talk every now and then, and we do all these other things. Walking in both worlds, biblically speaking, is not a way to faithfully walk with the Lord. We're called to come and die to ourselves and our own desires. And our church should not be cults of personality. They shouldn't be personality-driven within congregations. Churches should be faithful to the Lord based on what his word has said. And we have seen 
the blessing that comes with that. Certainly it might not be numerically as large as if you your pastor came in on a zip line or he wore a certain type of clothing or they played a certain type of music. What We've seen that kind of stuff. And boy, that brings people in. But into what are those churches bringing these people? Are they bringing them into a faithful Bible-believing church? I pray that that's the case. Since I've never been in all, and I haven't been in all of those churches, I won't broad brush them. But I will say, I pray that that's the case, because all too frequently, many times, when you scratch just below the surface, what you see is a lukewarmness, a lack of zeal for the things of God, a lack of passion. And the things about which we're passionate are the things that we prioritize in our lives, and we set other things aside to pursue those things. And so for the Christian, as Meade gives us his definition, it's a disciple of Jesus Christ and one who believes in and follows. Believes in and follows. Churches, in the same way, need to be filled with those disciples, but as a culture, need to believe in Christ, specifically the work that he's done. He was who he says he was, He is who he says he is, and he could do and did do what he said he was going to do. And then those churches faithfully follow. And how do they faithfully follow? Not by borrowing from the world, but by submitting to what's in the word that God revealed. The Laodicean church rejects the scriptures, downplays them, and says, yeah, the Bible says that, but it's, it's not possible that the authors of Scripture could have understood this element that we deal with in our modern society, and so the Bible is wrong in this area, or misguided. They don't want to go full bore and say that the Bible was wrong, or that Paul was wrong, or that Jesus was wrong, or that Moses was wrong, but that's what they're saying. They're using the definition of wrong and playing word games revealing a desire to walk in both worlds, to not be hot and zealous for Jesus or completely cold and turned off because they understand the loss and the cost by rejecting Jesus. At least they think they understand that loss and that cost. They think it's going to cost them in the world because look at verse 17. The world and worldliness is the only thing about which they care. I'm rich. I've got... All sorts of stuff. I have need of nothing. The worldliness is their priority. But that's not the priority of the Christian. The priority of the Christian is to believe in and follow Jesus Christ to be his disciple. And that means recognizing the latter portion of verse 17. Knowing that we are wretched and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. And that's not to simply just browbeat somebody and say you're an awful human being and you deserve hell. But no, it's recognizing that we are desperately wicked, and we are damaged, and we are evil in our natural state. But that's not how we have to live because of the person and the work of Jesus Christ, because God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still all wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, Christ went to the cross. He was born of a woman, born under the law, wrongly, falsely accused, wrongly convicted, wickedly put to death, rose again from the dead, 
defeating death, ascended into heaven, and is now interceding for his people on our behalf. It's believing in that. Now we're looking at what the cure is, what the fix is for Laodiceanism. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. Where is all that stuff going to come from? If If we're poor and wretched, blind and miserable and naked, how are we supposed to get all that stuff? Tell you where we don't get it. We don't get it by trying to just double and triple down on Laodiceanism. Because if we recognize that we're all of those things in the latter portion of verse 17, we also recognize the hopelessness of trying to pursue all the things in the former part. If we're wretched and poor and blind and miserable and naked, we don't have the tools to say, look, I'm rich and increased in goods. Now, the prosperity gospel hucksters on TV and on the Internet will tell you that. Just say the right words. God wants you healthy and wealthy. Say the right words, you get the threefold blessing. And if you send me a little bit of money, I've got a direct line upstairs, and I'll take care of you. It's all a scam. It's another form, another flavor of Laodiceanism, fixating on the world and worldly goods and worldly benefits at the expense of recognizing that the true need is a spiritual need. It's an internal need. The cure for Laodiceanism is the gospel of Jesus Christ, where a sinner, out of a desperate need for salvation because he recognizes all of the things in the latter portion of verse 17, cries out to God, cries out to him and says, I do need gold tried in the fire. I do need white raiment. I do need eye salve. I don't know how to get them. Please give them to me. Now this, where do we see that elsewhere in scripture? Turn with me in the book of Isaiah. These words should be memorable to many. And if they're the first time you're hearing them, you're in for a treat. Isaiah chapter 55. The first three verses. The cure for Laodiceanism. The cure for this idea that we can walk in two worlds and try to play fast and loose and maybe sneak into the kingdom of God, unconverted, but doing good stuff on the outside like we can trick God. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah has for us. Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do ye spend money for that which is not bread? You labor for that which satisfieth not. Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear, and come unto me. Hear, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. 
come and buy without money. What does that mean? Come to God for your provision, for your portion, without thinking you can earn it. The gospel is freely offered to all sinners. You don't have to have it all together to come to the Lord through Christ. Turn with me in Matthew's gospel. Again, well-known words to many, the end of chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, I'm going to read verses 27 through 30. Listen to the words that Jesus say, says, All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth, man, knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Laodiceanism labors and labors and labors. But the cure for Laodiceanism, the ultimate cure that takes someone from the cold category and makes them hot and passionate and zealous for the things of the Lord is the free gospel offered to all sinners, received by those people for whom Christ died. The yoke of Laodiceanism is exhausting and it's soul-crushing and bone-crushing, literally, to chase after all of the things in the beginning portion of Revelation 3.17 crushes humanity. But the burden that is actually the genuine cure for that is anything but. For those people who recognize that they are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. For those people who are weary and heavy laden trying to pursue after Laodiceanism. The yoke of Christ is light, his burden is easy. It's come and buy without money. You don't have what it takes to get the gold tried in the fire and the white raiment. That's fine. Because God in Christ has paid the debt for you. He's paid the price so that in Christ we do have gold tried in the fire that's more precious than anything that we could come up with on our own. We have white raiment. We are clothed in something by God and from God that's far greater than any clothing that we could have. The eye salve that helps us to see is the cure, is what helps us see clearly, and that comes from God. He makes the blind see. Remember what Christ said to John's disciples. He said, the captives are set free, the blind are, sick people are being made well, and blind people are being made to see. The eye salve of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the curative for Laodiceanism. And he confirms it. The end of our passage, well, the end of our portion for the day, in verse 19. He's saying, as many as I, I love, I rebuke and chasten. He's like, I'm not browbeating you. I'm telling you, you have got it wrong. If you are pursuing this half-heartedness, it is actually wicked 
and sinful, and I will reject you. Go all in one or the other. Go all in with heathenism, because the gospel saves heathens. Or ultimately, what he wants his people to do, be zealous, therefore, and repent. Be passionate, but be passionate in the awareness that you are poor and wretched and cold and tired and naked and beaten down with life, and you are weary and heavy laden. But the yoke of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the yoke that's easy, and it's light, and it'll set you free, and it'll give you the best clothing and the best gold, and your eyes will be open to see clearly, whereas anything else causes you to see cloudy. Think about the clothing that Adam and Eve created for themselves. The fig leaves sewn together hastily because they realized they were naked. What did God do as he's about to cast them out for their own good so that they wouldn't eat of the tree of life? What did he do? He shed blood and he provided the covering of animal skins, which was far better than anything that Adam and Eve could have hastily come up with for themselves. Such is the case with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The blood covering of Jesus Christ is far better than the fake, weak, hastily thrown together covering of the Laodiceanism that we see played out in Revelation. So the question we need to ask ourselves, are we deluding ourselves? Are we Laodiceanism in you know, Laodiceans in practice? Maybe we wouldn't be if somebody asked us bluntly, but are we struggling with that as individuals? Are we participating in that as the body of Christ, as the church? As we examine ourselves, not just to come to the Lord's Supper, but just in general, are we focusing on our worldly blessings to the exclusion of the reality that in our natural state we're poor and blind and wretched and weak? If that's the case, then the cure is to remember that we're, re, we're being rebuked from a loving Heavenly Father, just like the author of Hebrews tells us, that the discipline that we have in our lives comes from a loving Heavenly Father so that we would have the peaceful, peaceable fruit of righteousness. The cure for all of us is to be zealous, therefore, and repent of Laodiceanism, and recommit ourselves in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds to promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ, to believe in him and to follow him. So let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you that we have these words preserved and we have reminders that you love us and that you haven't abandoned us just because you saved us in Christ, that you are completely concerned, not only with our conversion, but with our glorification. And your word tells us that he who began the work in us will see it through to completion. So thank you for seeing it through. And thank you for taking care of us. Thank you for this word, but most importantly, thank you for Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.